this week on the Digital Dust Podcast. What are your thoughts on the Marilyn Monroe KK disaster? Oh wait, Patrick, do you not know about this? No. What? Oh my gosh! And welcome back to the Digital Dust Podcast. I'm Liz. I tried to speak with water in my mouth. It didn't work. Uh, Patrick is currently drowning. Yeah. uh, uh, Podcast tip 101. Number one podcast tip is uh, don't don't drink water right before you're supposed to speak. Is the lesson to learn. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) And we have a special guest. (laughs) Name Julia. <laughs> yes, we do. We have Julia with us today. Hello. <laughs> um. Yes. Hi, Julia. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, happy to be here. So, um, Julia is here to talk to us a little bit about fashion history, um, because we bugged her because she was in our MA co- cohort, and we were like. We know that you know about fashion history, and we don't really know anything about fashion history, so we just wanted to, like, have a fun chat. But yeah, do do you want to introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit more about you. Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm Julia Richards. I uh, went to graduate school with Liz and Patrick and Robin and Katie. Yeah, so I got my uh, MA in public history at Western, and then I also did my undergrad at Western, um, and I've been working sort of in and around museums um, for a couple of years now. I uh, started out with summer positions, um, and that's sort of where I started learning about fashion history, because I was really lucky to work at a museum in Dundas, Ontario, and they have an, a crazy collection of textiles, like unbelievable amount. Um, so I kind of got into it that way and learned a lot in that process. It was only a couple months that I was there, but I kind of that's where my interest started. I got to see a lot of really cool um, textile collections. So yeah. All right, sweet. Um, okay, so where should we where should we start? <laughs> yeah, what's going on? What's happening? <laughs> you were, so you have lots of fun facts to share about fashion history. Okay, like not like a lot. Like I have, so I have some fun facts that are like unrelated, but then also just kind of like generic. I don't know, like by decade, sort of. Um, I have a lot of links for you guys to look at. A lot of, oh, perfect. a lot of. Uh, I had a good time uh, going through a couple of museums, finding some examples. Oh, awesome! That's great. Perfect. And we will also leave links in the show notes for everyone listening, so you can also look at things with your own eyeballs. <laughs> okay, so I think that fashion history is just like really fascinating to me and I think just in general because it really does reflect a lot of social uh, movements and stuff and it really reflects a lot of um, societal expectations. Um, it's very tangible in like what you're seeing a lot of um, a lot of like the undergarments and stuff like that. a lot of the styles are very like very clearly like well this is why this happened. Um, so there's a few things that you look at when, uh, talking about fashion, especially women, just also disclaimer, I mostly know about upper middle class white women. Um, and this is where most of the trends would occur anyways, because if you were poor or working class, you didn't have time or the money 
to be spending on fashionable clothes, really, historically. Um, so when you're looking at these kinds of textiles, you really look at a lot of um, the silhouettes, which is really, really changes um, a lot in the 19th century. Almost every decade you get a new silhouette, um, and that has like a variety of reasons why that changes. Um, they're also looking at colors and uh, fabrics and sleeves, which change a lot, which is just kind of like trendy. Um, they go from wide to like really narrow. Um, and then color especially, um, and it's really interesting because um, wedding dresses especially get saved a lot in archives because that's something that people save. Like my mom on her own has her wedding dress her, my nana's her grandmother's so that's from the 1980s the 1950s and the 1930s wow that's so cool yeah so it's and they're items that are kept in really good condition too because people preserve them and they often get donated because you clean that your grandma's house and you find all these dresses yeah <laughs> yeah exactly like three wedding dresses what are you gonna do with that um and color, especially in wedding dresses, white was only very recently with Queen Victoria popular color. Um, before that, it was really impractical to have white because most uh, like working class women or like middle class women, they couldn't afford to just buy one dress for one event. So they would have a dress made that was, you know, like pretty like a little bit more like upscale, but still very functional for going out on your like day-to-day -day. so a lot of darker colors were really popular too because you know you're you're walking in the streets your skirt like your skirt's so long it's touching the mud white is really hard to keep clean yeah exactly um even like soot from your house fires because you're probably tending cook fires um and Sure, yeah. So it's just hard to maintain white, so it's not, it wasn't a popular color until Queen Victoria, who I think allegedly wanted to look more innocent to her husband and less queenly, and that's why she chose white. Um, so that's kind of where we get that still today. Yeah, okay, so I can show you these two that are pretty cool. I found these at the McCord Museum. Oh, wow. Oh, that's so gorgeous. So that first one is hand-painted silk, which would be... That's hand-painted. Mm -hmm, which would be extremely wow. time-consuming and, like, very expensive to do. Like, the next one is about, like, 100 years later, and that one is, like, a much darker color and would have likely belonged to, like, a working-class woman who couldn't afford or, like, didn't want to buy one dress for one occasion. It's so interesting too, because I feel like you would really need to know the provenance with these kinds of wedding dresses to be like, it, like, because when I look at it, I'm like, this isn't a wedding dress. Yeah, exactly. That's also like part of it because it has to be someone who's like saved it forever and is like, oh, this is my great, great grandmother's wedding dress. Because you wouldn't have guessed because it's changed so much. And like, especially that last one um, from the 1879, like it's, pretty comparable to like any sort of day dress that you would see normally I think what's really cool about like looking at like textiles and clothes too is just like you get it's hard to see on these like pictures like because you're not there like up close with it but it's so neat to see like where there is like snags or stains and you know and like how that 
you know, and especially too, like a lot of this was custom made for people. So you, it's such an intimate like piece of their life when like they're not around anymore. Like it's, yeah, it's really neat. Yeah. That's what I found was really cool too, is because like they're preserved like exactly as people left them pretty much. So yeah, you see these stains. And then one thing that's really cool too, is you see the heights of people because like you put it on the mannequin and there was a few dresses that I worked with and they were like five feet tall, like very short. And it's like, it's crazy to like just see that visual representation like that. And the corseted waist too, that you're like, oh my God, you were expected to fit into this. Yeah. I think that's also a problem that happens. Um, like mannequins just aren't made the way that they were or like different proportions so some dresses have really narrow waists because you'd be like really cinched in and also just smaller because of nutrition and like whatnot. So they have these really tiny women, but the mannequins are a lot bigger, like for today's proportion. So it's really hard to get them on sometimes because it just doesn't fit. That's, That's crazy. So true. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so another thing that I find really cool is weighted silk or shattered silk. Um, so this is pretty common in textiles from, so what's really interesting about weighted silk is that it actually contains tin, iron, or lead. Oh, wow. So the way that they sold silk was by weight. So you would buy the raw material and then process it. Um, it's called degumming. I don't fully know what goes on. I think you just extract like the main like silk fibers and then you would sell it as like the bolts of fabric but you'd also sell it by weight so that would be about one-fifth of the like the total weight so you'd essentially be losing money because you bought it for so much more weight than what you're selling it at so to get around that people started adding metals in the process to make it heavier wow and you wouldn't be able to see it like you wouldn't see like any metallic in it um but it would make the silk fibers extremely brittle and silk is usually pretty strong, right? Um, so they'd be reselling it, making their money back. But then over time, it makes the silk extremely brittle. It actually shatters on wear lines, so you wouldn't be able to wear it as long. And then even just storing it, like having it in your trunk or in a museum, it's like literally shredding itself just because of the weight of the metal on the fibers. So even if you just pick it up, like I've seen a few, and you just pick it up and like fabric is just falling to the ground yeah wow yeah we had that at um I worked at a a historic house that was like set in the 1890s and we had um like a sewing kit and a couple other things that had actual like silk in them and yeah it was the same thing you'd pick it up and it just kept disintegrating and disintegrating and you're like I don't know what to do (laughs) yeah it's so sad because it's like yeah like it's finite how long these items will exist because it just keeps getting like more and more deteriorated the more you use it. I think museums probably don't display it for those reasons because just any weight on it is just going to like shred it even more. So it's really like, it's really sad actually. Like it's, it's terrible. And there's no way to stop it really. Um, yeah, because you can't like take the metal out. No, like it's yeah. just in the fabric itself, like just in the fibers. It's crazy. Wow. Yeah, so those are like my main fun facts. And then we can talk about silhouette changes. Yeah, what is a silhouette? Oh, okay. So it's like the shape of the dress. Like, what do you mean by when you say silhouette change? Like, what does that mean? Well, you okay. think like late Victorian, late Victorian has that, like, like the bustle, so like the mm-hmm. big butt. 
at the end. Oh, like, yeah, you know, like the duck butt. 20s hair, yeah. <laughs> versus like 20s fashion where 20s mm-hmm. was very boxy and loose fitting yeah, and more masculine. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, cool. Sweet. I don't know if it's true, but I was always told that at least for the Victorian silhouette, that was like, again, the like tiny waist and like big bustle at the back. Um, I, when I was doing tours, I would talk about it because we had like a dressing room that had like bustles and corsets. And I would, I would always joke that like, you know how like the Kim Kardashian butt is trendy right now? It's kind yeah. of like what was, like, it was the same thing back then. Amazing. And I, I was always That's told it. that apparently Victoria or like some, like someone like higher class, like, like she was a, in later in her life, she was a larger woman. And so I always was always told that like, that that silhouette kind of like emulated her Ooh. figure and that's why it Interesting. became popular. I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm not too true. sure. Yeah. If anyone else knows, <laughs> uh, let us know. It's interesting <laughs> yeah. Yeah. to see the change because in 1815 or like 1810, if you think of Bridgerton, it's like the really high empire waistline, like just under the bust. And then it gets progressively lower and then still pretty straight, and then progressively bigger, and then, like, narrow again. Um, here, I can show you some examples, Patrick, of what a silhouette would be. So these are both from the 1810s. Oh, wow. Also from the McCord Museum. You can see how high the waist is. Sure. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And like very very narrow skirt right like pretty like cylindrical and very girlish i think too is like really it's like very girly because if you think also in bridgerton when like the older women are also wearing that style it always puts me off it just feels like very childish yeah it always looks like they're like trying to be trendy but (laughs) yeah exactly and then even like in 1820 it gets a little bit lower you can see it kind of progressively getting a bit lower. Sleeves are getting a bit longer. Still very cylindrical in the skirts. Yeah. Kind of jumping ahead to like 1860. There's a few. Oh, links in the, there. oh, wow. Um, yeah, interesting. It's like it really peaks. Like this is probably the widest the skirt will be. Oh, yeah, this is very, um, like, Gone mm-hmm. with the Winds, Southern Belle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, wow, and this yeah. is very, very structured, yeah. too. Um, because you want to achieve that really, like, flat, kind of, like, V waist. And that's, like, heavily corseted, lots of layers. And then the skirt is, like, petticoats upon petticoats, hoop skirt, bustle, hip padding to get that, like, massive like skirt yeah and it's extremely hard to move in yeah like you can't sit in a hoop skirt or anything i don't know how they did that can't walk through doors <laughs> yeah what it's the a heck? big challenge That's yeah kind of, yeah so so for anyone who is uh listening and doesn't have a chance to like look at some of these photos immediately as they're listening to it what's really neat about these dresses is that like like so i guess what we're talking about here is how like the 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 like waist and leg part of the dress, like the, like whatever you'd call that portion of a dress, mm-hmm. it like it it like balloons out the skirt, <laughs> like, the skirt part. Okay, great, that makes sense. Obviously, duh. 
So this, the, but the skirt part is just like balloons outward into this giant like circle, <laughs> like 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 a like it reminds me of those uh those like human soccer games, like where you get into giant balls and play like soccer or whatever. You're like bouncing into each other, those big bubble things. It's nuts, yeah. So and that's within like thirty, no, like fifty years or so, like within about half a century or so. You go from that like regency era one that you're showing us from like 1815 that's like very very slim very slender almost like lines the body perfectly and then like over time eventually 50 years later it's like completely the opposite (laughs) this is pretty interesting yeah exactly like it just gets progressively like a bit lower and then the waist gets more and more defined in sort of like a classical like sort of like classic feminine features are really emphasized in these fashions. So you see like a really, really tiny waist emphasized by huge hips that come out in this like dome, like like a cupcake. You gotta have those birth and like, hips. Like ball gown. Sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting too to see like just by looking at these, like it's interesting to see like kind of how like the role, you can see how the role of women like has, has obviously changed. Like, with these dresses, like, you really couldn't do much except lay around all day. Like, you know, that's why we have, like, you know, the, the chaise lounge, the fainting couches, because your corset was so tight, you, like, had to sit down every, you know, you know, couple hundred steps. Um, yeah. Yeah, you're not running around, you're not, like, leaving your house, you're probably receiving guests, and then also in this time period, you'd have multiple outfits in one day. Like, those are mostly evening dresses, so you'd have... One for the evening, which was like going to the balls, like the biggest parties, most extravagant dresses. But you'd also have something for walking around the park that was like very similar in structure, but slightly different fabric, a little bit easier to move in, but not by much. And it's mostly to be seen in, like you are an object to be seen walking around. Um, And then the afternoon, you would change again, have tea, have people come over, visit you. And then you change again to your evenings and writing activities, like anything, like everything had an entirely different outfit. So you'd be changing like three or four times a day. And like changing, like when it's so hard to get changed in the first place. Mm -hmm. Well, so it would be like cinching you in, taking it off, putting it back on. And a lot of these dresses too are like two pieces. So they have the skirt and then the kind of like jacket that would like... Um, probably tie in the back or something like that to sit over top and then even I think in later trends you get even stuff over the skirt to add more layers and I think that's more in um, sort of the 1870s so we get a very full giant circle kind of around your waist and then it shifts to the back and that's when you get the bustle at the back and like that really pronounced like booty Whoa, yeah, now it's yeah. a lot more flat in the front, but like big, big booty in the back. <laughs> and that would be like bustles, which is basically like a pillow, like a dome, kind of like a crescent shaped pillow. So it would sit on your back, like your lower back, and then you tie it and you just put fabric on fabric, like over top. And even like, um, like I was always taught about like gloves too, like for upper class women, you had to wear gloves when you were out, not just because, um, like it was ladylike, but like you, you were supposed to have very, like your hands were supposed to be very pale, 
and like very clean because having tan or like you know like having um, like calluses on your hands and stuff immediately signaled that like you did work and you always want to look like someone who doesn't do work that you just lay around the house all day and you have people to do that for you so like things like that it's just so interesting yeah absolutely and like you wanted to avoid the sun that's why like pale skin was so appealing it was because oh well you you didn't work at you didn't do any labor in the sun you were inside your house or you had an umbrella or like whatever yeah (laughs) i mean that's why that's why cholera some people were like honestly wanted to get cholera because like hey it made you look (laughs) yeah made you look nice and pale (laughs) yes same with tuberculosis the romantic disease where you could just rest by the sea and get like that clean air or whatever that's what they always prescribed like go into this mountain resort and clear your lungs it did nothing you just had a fancy place to die basically but (laughs) yeah Yeah, slowly. slowly yes of course yeah so yeah so you kind of get it's really like it's just so interesting to me to go from like so narrow massive hoop skirts and then you get the bustle in the back and then kind of in the 1900s um it's back to that kind of like narrow skirt um like a v uh bodice and all of like the top all of the bodice is achieved by like heavy corseting and in like very straight lines very clean lines um, and that's all like boning, corseting, just like pushing all of your organs everywhere. Um, and then kind of in 1910, you get what's called a hobble skirt. Ooh. So this is from the Victorian Albert Museum in London, England, which has like a crazy collection. Um, so you can see that's really gathered on the side. And that would make it extremely hard to walk in, like very narrow. Oh, whoa. Yeah. So it's called a hobble skirt because women were literally hobbling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like a penguin skirt. Well, it's interesting, too, because like this is kind of the first time that you you really start to see for the first time, like women's feet, you know, like or, and like um, bare arms too. like the sleeves are a lot shorter. Yeah. Some more liberating. Yeah. <laughs> as liberating as mm-hmm. it can be. And yet not liberating at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So we go from sort of like that really like heavily structured, even in 1910, you're still heavily structured. A little bit less of corsets, but still like it's very much like you were wearing several layers underneath, not as much as a hoop skirt, but still petticoats um, and probably some bloomers basically like long underwear shorts um and then you hit the 1920s and it's like so different completely different yeah i also just really love 1920s dresses because they're always they're so beautiful and there's so many intricate beading there's a couple if you want to look yeah that's true you really get like a lot more fun details oh yeah and like lace and you're seeing like sheer fabrics too. Yeah, and again like short skirts too. Like a little bit for the first time. Yeah. Yeah, the hemlines are now at your calves and very notably it's very free like freeing to move because women were now like for the first time for a lot of you know like upper 
middle-class white women. They had their own money. This is post-World War One. So it's like, um, it's really fascinating in the 20s because it's like post-World War One, and World War One was absolutely devastating. Like, just the trauma that everyone lived through. Like, it, towns lost entire generations of men, but women also went into the workforce for probably, like, the first time. Women got the vote in 1918 in Canada, 1920 in the U.S. So kind of in this decade as well, for a lot of women, they're experiencing these liberties for the very first time, and that's really reflected in their clothing. Because they're going to nightclubs, they're drinking, they're smoking, they're occupying these spaces that were previously exclusively male-dominated. And it was not a space for women for respectable women you didn't drink you didn't go to the bars you didn't go to nightclubs jazz was the devil's music (laughs) which is like what (laughs) yeah exactly yeah jazz slaps like what the what the hell i don't know yeah and it's just like you can see like this very tangible like liberty that many women f- were feeling reflected in their clothing um it's very boxy so kind of like a boyish figure was trendy so no curves no em- emphasized waist it's actually really lower um like a dropped waist kind of past where your natural waist would be probably like around your hips um and there was very very little undergarments i think the bras probably invented around this time but like very thin fabric and there's just like nothing really like underneath just like just the dress kind of hanging off you very free flowing fabric so you can move you can dance and everything like that yeah yeah and even like i know around that time too like um even like hair like short hair was really popular too like like that really kind of more masculine look was was super trendy i love um if people watch Downton Abbey, like, that's a really good one for that as they go from, like, really early 20th century into the 20s. It's really cool to see how their style, like, progresses and changes because that's just such, yeah, it's just, like, you know, the previous dresses we saw took, like, a couple, you know, decades to change. And then within, like, 20 years, we have such a drastic change in, like, how women are dressing. It's so interesting. Yeah, and it's taken up by the younger generation, too. This is where, like, the iconic flapper is, and it's really, like, just flaunting social convention because it's their mothers, their grandmothers that grew up wearing all those clothes from the 1800s. Like, very strict Victorian morals. And now it's, like, post-war, they have money. Like, I think it's just... It's, like, crazy to think about how, like... I don't know, not like euphoric, but also like living past World War Two or sorry, World War One and experiencing like the shock of just how devastating that war was. And then now you're like, I'm alive. Let's just like, who cares? Who cares about morality when like everyone I know died? Like, who cares? What does it matter? Yeah. Life is short. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's all these young women that are just like, I don't care anymore. I'm going to show my ankles. I'm going to go to nightclubs and I'm going to drink and you can't stop me. (laughs) And then prohibition happened. Well, yeah. Yeah. 
And I mean, it's also like you, you got to think about how like if if this is like the first like mass exodus of women going into some sort of workforce or something during World War One and after World War One is over and a lot of the men return and demand their jobs back or women women are sort of placed back into this position where they like they're essentially forced back into where they were before when many of them still wanted to be out in the public world more often in the in the, in the public sphere. And so then you have this fashion coming along as sort of like a statement almost in that way of like you like you can't control us in that way anymore and that sort of thing. I think that's kind of neat. Yeah, it's up there with like sm- like a lot of women started taking up smoking and like you know like I yeah, think a lot of right? it was just like a you know middle fingers up kind of <laughs> kind of vibe. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like they. They're not being restrained, but like literally and socially, they're not participating in that anymore. And then even in the kind of decades that follow, like 1930s and 1940s, like it's still pretty loose fabrics. Um, I think it does get a little bit longer. And more practical, too, that we're in the Depression. and Right, right. I don't have them on my bed right now, but I still have them. My great, great grandmother, who I'm named after, she made a bunch of pillowcases and stuff with sugar sack fabric. Oh, so, cool. like, I still have them. But things, so things like that, you started to get like so much more resourceful. Mm-hmm. And that's when, you know, you were reinventing your clothes and always like mending mm-hmm. things to, um, yeah. Yeah, and then to your point about the Depression-era fabrics, you also see in World War II, like 1940s, um, very utilitarian, militaristic, very simple fabrics, because many con- many Western countries were under-rationing, um, and they just didn't really have the time or the energy to like focus on fashion or anything like that. Um, and then you get into 1947, two years after the Second World War ends, and Christian Dior premieres what is now called his new look. And he, it's it's interesting because he debuts, like, again, two years, like, just after the war has ended, he debuts this line, this collection, that's extremely luxurious, extremely feminine, and expensive. And it's really notable because it features like those really classic feminine shapes that we have been seeing like in the past century in the 1800s. And it's going back to kind of like this pre-war sense of normalcy that many people wanted, many governments wanted. They wanted to kind of forget that World War II happened. They wanted to get back to normal. And what that really meant was that women had to stop working men went back to their jobs and women went back to the home and they became housewives and mothers and nothing else was really expected of them. And it's really reflected in Dior's new look because he really creates kind of the quintessential 50s look with the cinched waist and the big skirt again. Um, And I can send you an example. So what he's doing with his fashion is really kind of going back to these simpler times but really simpler just meant that, you know, back before women had all these liberties, back before um, like the flappers happened, like back calling on all of these elements, like these cinched waists, the big skirt, the like copious fabrics, because a lot of the draping was really expensive. It was actually pretty controversial in London because they were still under rationing. So they couldn't achieve all these really luxurious looks that Dior was making. Yeah, I know even, like, I think it's the same year, um, 47, that Queen Elizabeth gets married, 
and she actually paid for her wedding dress with ration coupons. Like, she had to, yeah, it's crazy. So she was scrimping and saving, and then Dior was like, no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, like, part of it is that, uh, like, Paris especially was the fashion center for, like, centuries. And then it was, France was occupied in World War II. That stopped completely. And it was partly to kind of get that prestige back for Paris, for France. So he came out with this like debut look that was extremely popular and it influenced like decades or like the 1950s fashion. Um, And even other designers, like you can see this Balenciaga dress who was kind of a contemporary of Dior around the same time. Um, It's very reminiscent of those big bustle dresses like in the back, it's like, like, if you didn't know the date, like, I would have thought that was, like, 1870. hmm Oh, wow. Well, that's crazy. So you see all these designers post-World War II, like, really, like, hearkening back to this, like, normalcy, like, let's get back to the, to the best times, like, let's, you know, like, stuff like that. That's super cool. And then almost, like, and then in 1960, Betty Friedan comes out with, the feminine mystique and puts a name on what many women were feeling that this rese- the sense of return to normalcy making women housewives making them mothers um really like affected all these women where they felt they had no value they were educated but they weren't expected to do anything with it um and i think you can really trace that to like this fashion that was like so prevalent and so popular um yeah and just really like a tangible like a visual representation of like that time period yeah yeah because even around the 50s too like you have the girdle like Mm -hmm. a lot of it is just a total reiteration of corsets and ball gowns yeah that's true yeah absolutely and like yeah hemlines are like again a bit lower like they're kind of at the knee now and it's very like conservative because if you contrast that against the miniskirt of the 1960s, which was like revolutionary, skirt above the knee, that's crazy. And it's very similar to the flappers who are, you know, flaunting social convention. Uh, the miniskirt was picked up by younger women who were tired of like the 1950s heels and like really like conservative looks. And again, you also in the 60s get that similar like boxy shape and stuff too that mm-hmm. we were getting with um with the flappers like you know like i'm thinking twiggy mm-hmm. you know like the very mod style yeah yeah exactly and it's just like yeah it's kind of almost like repeated just in different trends and then even the miniskirt was really popularized in like a jersey athletic material so again like a freedom of movement and like a very clear like both literally women are experiencing more liberties and like figuratively in like how they're like in society wow that's super cool yeah 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 i'm wondering so i feel like even just since like the 60s and 70s like fashion has changed a lot for us obviously but i feel like not not just like the style but i feel like the actual textiles that we use the processes that we use and like how we treat our clothes has like really changed and I'm so I'm so interested in like you know in like 50 60 years from now like will will the things that we wear be in a museum and like be worth saving especially when it's like you know you look at like 
Shein and like all these like fast fashion brands that with like horrible ethical implications um if you shop at Shein please do some research and not shop there I know it's cheap I know we're all poor but please don't so so anyway things like that and even just like each season you know you throw something out and you buy a new thing to replace it um so yeah it's just interesting I don't you know it'll be it's so different than like this is a dress that I spent so much money on it was handmade and made to fit my body and I'm gonna keep it in my family forever you know like yeah yeah it's it's interesting because even just trend cycles are so much faster now than they were like 19th century 20th century like we're kind of analyzing like each decade that like there's new trends but it's still like pretty sim like it's a really slow progression but now it's like within a couple years like the skinny jeans the low-rise skinny jeans of my 2010 nightmares are back and i don't i don't appreciate it i don't want it i don't want to go back (laughs) i don't want low-rise i'm like why they're horrible (laughs) no it's it's not a good look and even like my mom um she held on to the this pair of uh Oh God! What are the boots called? Like the big winter boots, like classic oh, Canadian. Like, um, are they Sorrels? Like they're just like a yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. My mom had those when she was like I don't know, probably my age. Like we, that was our shoes for going out to take out the garbage or something like that. They were just always there, completely massive, and then they came back like the exact same style. They came back like two years ago. So it's it's weird experiencing like living through the fashions that you grew up on or like your mom knew and is now you know now trendy like the mom jeans are back the 80s style yeah I don't know what will be kept um I think that's also a question of sustainability and there's just so much like like the halls the people buying just like crazy amounts from Shein and like all those other fast fashion like there's just so much now I don't know yeah, and it's interesting, too, because, like, you know, we do have some things that are going to be saved, like, for example, like, um, like, Kate Middleton's wedding dress, Meghan Markle, like, all the, like, royal, like, those have been on display, um, and it's interesting that, like, history is kind of repeating itself that way, and it's one thing that makes me sad when, like, we are looking at the dresses and stuff from, you know, Victorian era and, like, you know, even earlier, that we only get to see the, like, privileged white perspective and we don't get to look because like those like for people, for example, like we get to see, you know, the uh, Vivian Lee-esque look of the Southern Belle who was living on a plantation. But we don't get to see what the people who actually worked on the plantation as slaves wore because that just wasn't conserved. Like, you know, it, it's just part of the, the circumstances. And so it's interesting. Like, I hope or I, I wish that like, you know, maybe some of the garments that we can save would. And it's nice, too, because we don't have, like, this, like, huge upper class versus, you know. But I think it would be interesting that we can get more, like, nuanced perspectives of of maybe of different garments, like, today and in the future. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I think even just fashion in general has changed. Like, it's not so much, like, there is high fashion. But I think, like, now that's, like, really edgy, sort of, like, not what you'd be wearing every day anyways, so it's not like you're saving, like you wouldn't have like a really high fashion, like from the runway 
like outfit or whatever like it's so different now and like back then like it would be like pretty much exactly the same of like they're wearing the miniskirt you get the same miniskirt pretty much like it's it's interesting that way too and yeah it, it is really sad that with textiles like it's only really like what people chose to save and that is tends to be what people could afford to save and not wear until like you either had to sell it or it was just unwearable and like disintegrated so um i don't know if this is like controversial but what are your thoughts on the marilyn monroe kim k uh, disaster well i feel like the big thing because everyone's like very upset oh wait patrick do you not know about this no. <laughs> no? What? Oh my Sorry. gosh! I'm under a rock? That's okay. I, you know? Do you know the dress that... Ma- the Marilyn Monroe dress she wore to sing Happy Birthday, Mr. President to JFK? Okay. You can look it up if not. It's like super I, okay. tight. She actually had to be sewn into it. And it's all rhinestones. Oh. And it's like a see-through fabric. So it looks like she's like not wearing anything. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and it's like very like a very fragile yes. fabric to begin with and only ever worn by her that one time. Yeah. Made for and her. And so for the Met Gala uh, for 2022, um Kim K decided, mm-hmm. well, I don't know if she decided or someone I think Rip cuz Ripley's has it and which is not a museum, so they don't have the same standards. No. That's that's my issue cuz so basically Kim K wore the dress um and she had to lose like 14 pounds to fit into it and like she couldn't like sit down in it and like all these things and so everyone was worried about ruining it but i was like and like there's videos of them when she's at ripley's and they're like putting it on her to like try it on for the first time and like it doesn't fit her and they're like stretching it and stuff and i'm like they're like oh my god they're mishandling it i'm like it's ripley's like ripley's doesn't know shit (laughs) at least from what i know i don't know but oh no, I'm pretty sure, like, when it was all happening, like, the Museum Association of, like, all of the countries was like, this is terrible practices. And because Ripley's is not a museum, it's like, I, don't, I think it's a private collection, maybe, or something. Like, they don't have the same standards. They don't have to have the same standards. And, like, she just doesn't have the same body as Marilyn Monroe. So, like, anyone else wearing it would damage it. Any just anyone wearing any historic garment would damage it, and then to like top it off too, she had a replica that she wore for the rest of the night. So she wore Marilyn's dress for like ten minutes to get photos, and then changed into the replica. Which is like just wear the replica because no one's gonna know. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I think that also really speaks to like what we've been talking about this whole episode of uh, the sort of social conventions around clothing and the social capital that you gain from wearing certain outfits and what that means. And so like her wearing it for ten minutes, like that that just shows that like the point of clothes isn't necessarily only to look them or to wear them and, and look nice or whatever. But like there's definitely like a, a social reason why she did that. Uh, for 10 minutes and then once she got what she needed for the sort of social capital bit then she just put on the replica because it it didn't matter anymore because like she did the thing and so that's you know so yeah yeah exactly and it's now it's damaged now like the rhinestones are stretched the fabric is stretched it's just like sad it's uh yeah it's very sad and i think 
I think Kim K did it too because I think she was trying to embody that like she is this generation's Marilyn, um, mm-hmm. which is just kind of like I don't know if you guys have watched Blonde yet. I started it and I have not wanted to go back. Um, it seems very sad and just like not good. It's awful. It's disgusting. It's so bad. I watched, and I knew that going into it. That's why I was like, okay, I want to see what we're actually dealing with. And same thing, we're just like completely like fetishizing Marilyn, and like it was not done properly. That's probably a whole episode on itself. But like Kim K is doing a similar thing, <laughs> like you know, kind of trying to emulate her and like take away her voice, and I don't know, and like kind of fit herself into this image. But I mean, she's Kim K. She can do whatever she wants, but. <laughs> yeah i think it's especially bad that it's like marilyn monroe who's like very famously monetized over sexualized in like in every way like i was seeing apparently some someone paid to be buried on top of her which is like unbelievable like this poor woman one of them paid so there's two there's two guys that paid for because she's buried in a mausoleum if have, people haven't heard of this so She's like, it's like a shelf, essentially, where like people get slotted in. And so there was, yeah, there was two different auctions. One of them was the spot above her. And then the other one was like a spot beside her. And the one guy paid, yeah, like thousands and thousands of dollars to have that spot. And he made sure that he was put in facing down. So he would be looking down on Marilyn because he always wanted to sleep on top of Marilyn or be on top of Marilyn. And the same guys beside her did the same thing where he's like, I, I've always wanted to be beside Marilyn, and now I'm beside her for eternity. It's just like, oh, like... That's revolting. (laughs) It's revolting, absolutely. Pardon? Poor woman, like, cannot rest. Yeah. I wish we could, like, exhume them. I wish we could be like, that's fucked up. We are exhumed. Yeah! (laughs) But they paid for it. Yeah, it's this poor woman. Like, she can't get a break anywhere... Yeah. And she doesn't really have like many, like she didn't have children. She doesn't really have descendants. So there really isn't anyone to like speak on her behalf and like advocate. Right. Which is sad, but yeah. Well, on that note. (laughs) That was a great end to that. (laughs) Uh, uh, Julia, do you have anything else to add? I mean, thanks for coming on and speaking about this wonderful topic about fashion history yeah yeah thank you for having me um yeah i just think it's so interesting and i think there's just like so much that you can read in textiles and just like and even just on like a really personal note of like seeing like you said liz of just like you can see exactly how they lived how they treated their stuff and like it's just such a really like a window into like a really personal like yeah it's and it's like one person too like it's not like we were speaking pretty generally but when you look at the textiles themselves like you can see like how one woman or one man or like whoever one person lived their lives it's really interesting yeah julia thank you so so much um all the like links and stuff will be in the show notes if you guys want to like look at these garments yourself or if you have any other like that are like your, one of your favorite pieces or something let us know you can dm us email us yeah i highly recommend the mccord museum their online collection is lovely. Um, they're in Montreal, but I'm not quite sure what 
collections they have in the Victorian Albert Museum in London. Probably some good stuff, yeah. Looks gorgeous. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much again for uh, for coming on and talking to us. No problem. Thank you for having me. I don't know how to end. That's okay. Um, Liz does. Liz got it. Well, we'll we'll do what we always do. Amazing. And we're gonna say uh, we'll see you on the flippy flop. Boom. on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabek, Haudenosaunee, Lanapawak, and Attawandaran peoples, on lands connected with the London Township and Somber Treaties of 1796 and the Dish with One Spoon Covenant Wampum. This land continues to be home to First Nations peoples, Métis people, and Inuit people, whom we recognize as the contemporary stewards of the land and waters we are on today. Digital Dust is hosted and produced by Elizabeth Edwards, Katie Gaskin, Patrick Kingen, and Robin Marshall. Sound design by Elizabeth Edwards. Audio transcription by Katie Gaskin. Our theme music is by Mattias Miller.